Good morning, everybody. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Um, Lord, we just thank you for all of the songs that we sung this morning, the scriptures that we read that describe your people as a family. And Lord, we know that we don't become that unless you make us it. So we just ask that you would reveal yourself as Father to us this morning. And Lord, we trust your leadership in the family. We trust your provision in the family. And God, we pray that you would do something deep. Something deep. Something deep. deep. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> it's going to be real deep. <laughs> you would do something deep in us that um, binds us together. Uh, not just as individuals but as a family. Lord, that's how we want you to work with us today. And God, we trust you for it and pray that you would do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you don't know me, my name is Joel Repick. I'm lead pastor here at Crestmont. Um, we're going to be reading today out of Acts chapter 4, continuing on in our series in Acts. So you can get there on your devices or in the Bible in your pews or the Bible that you brought with you. And uh, I'm excited to be talking about this this morning. Uh, you've heard, uh, we have a lot of people out today because the Unplugged Women's Getaway is happening this weekend. I think they're wrapping up right about now. And uh, we have about 40 women there. And all this weekend, I've been getting texts and pictures from the women who have participated, um, just talking about what a meaningful weekend it's been. And so um, I'm really grateful for that. And thank you for uh, praying for them um, we wanted just a good weekend for God to encounter uh, some of the women of our church. And so um, I'm just really grateful for that. Okay, today's passage is a description of God's people as family. So just as a reminder, if you were here last week, um, we talked about how the early believers responded when they received um, some of the first threats um, about their ministry. Um, they had seen this incredible healing outside of the temple. And in the shadow of the religious system, God's power had been displayed in healing this, this man who had been lame since birth. And the response of those who held power at the time, particularly religious power, unsurprisingly was that they felt threatened by this. And so uh, they pulled Peter and John, two of the early church leaders, two of the apostles, um, into a room to question them, and they question them, and then they threaten them that they must stop this ministry. They must stop preaching about Jesus. Of course, they can't do that because they can't deny what they've seen and what they've heard. And so they instinctively go back to their family on mission, which is what we're talking about today, go back to the family, and they tell the family about the threats that they've received and their response is not just to try to run away from the pain. It's not to just escape what's happening. Their response is to pursue God's presence together. I said last week that they don't just go from pain to no pain. They go from pain to God's presence, and they do it together. Um, and God meets them powerfully in that moment. And one thing I mentioned last week is that in my experience at least, some of the deepest relationships of my life have been formed in the context of God's presence, of experiencing God's presence together. Um, there's lots of ways that we form relationships with one another. 
Um, but I can just tell you out of my experience, when I, especially in painful times, when I have pursued God with other people, um, those are the relationships that are some of the deepest in my life. And I'm sure some of you have had the same experience as well. And so it's no surprise that after this description of this healing and these threats and pursuing God's presence together, that now uh, the believers are described as a family. And that's really the passage that we're going to read together today. I don't know if you've, some of you have experienced this here at Crestmont, but you just finish a time of worship and prayer, and you just have such a sense of deep connection and closeness to the other people in the room. Um, God's presence has a way of doing that. So this is one of the passages in the book of Acts where the early church is really described as a family. Um, it's interesting, the way Luke writes the book of Acts in the New Testament, there's these powerful, explosive moments of miracles, and in between these miracles and ministry are often these descriptions of the early believers as family. And they're described in different ways, but it's letting us know that the story in the book of Acts, the story with the early believers, is not just the story of some individuals who experienced and saw and did some extraordinary things. It's the story of a family whose collective identity has been shaped by Jesus. And this is, has affected them so deeply uh, that they're doing life together and they're on the mission together. And I think this has a lot uh, to say to us about how we are supposed to be in relationship with one another. Now, what I'm about to read is a description of a family, and I'm going to suggest it really is the description of any good family. Um, I realize this morning there be may be many of us in here who more than anything else in this life, what we wanted to experience was a good family. Um, and we feel like we didn't experience it. And sometimes as we consider these kinds of things today, I may can surface some of that pain. But I just want to say to you before we read this passage, if that's you, if even the word family um, conjures up for you things that you would rather not think about, uh, you need to know this, that we get a second chance at family as God's people. The family of our birth is not the family that we'll experience for all eternity, <laughs> all right? Um, it's the family defined by Jesus that we'll experience for all eternity. And this family that we're a part of, this family on mission that we're a part of, like maybe some of the families that we grew up in, can also be dysfunctional, right? Because it's made up of people. But this family has a glorious future ahead of it that will last for all eternity in perfect love and unity. So we know that we are going somewhere good together in the family of God, right? So we're going to read this passage. Often we stand to our feet in honor of God's word. So if you would... Stand to your feet. Um, one thing I've rarely had to navigate in ministry is transitioning my kids from Sunday school to the worship service without my wife here. But that's what happened today. Anyway, I think I did pretty good. Um, but I am such a bad multitasker that I just feel like I have to say this since we're a family and we can talk honestly. Um, I, I, it's typical that a bunch of people are saying things to me in between Sunday school and the service, and I'm such a bad multitasker that I sat down here at the beginning of the service, and I thought, oh my goodness, I didn't hear anything that anybody said to me. So if you said something to me, 
you should repeat it to me, especially if it was important. I just want to throw that out there. Okay, Acts 4, beginning in verse 32. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that were needy, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. You can take your seat. Now, these few verses um, perform a few different functions in the book of Acts. Um, these verses are actually setting up for us, in more ways than one, one of the hardest stories in the book of Acts, which I believe we're going to get to next week, um, in Acts chapter 5. And so, Acts 4, 32 to 37 is giving us some information that we need to know so that we can understand this very difficult passage that we're going to end up reading next week. Um, but in and of itself, this passage is worth considering because of the way it describes the early believers as family. Now, just for a minute, I, I want you to think of this passage this way. On one hand, I think the verses that we just read are a pretty radical description of what it means to be the church. Would you agree with me? Um, to all sell our possessions and put it into a common pot so that nobody would be in need. I mean, and the, this isn't people selling their extra pair of Nikes, right? Their extra pair of shoes. This is people selling their land, their homes, right? The, what's most important to them. And remember, in the culture in which this is written, uh, land ownership is everything. It represents someone's power and security, Right? And they're selling even this. It's a pretty radical description of Christian community. One that as we read it, if you're honest, you might think, I'm not sure that I've ever quite experienced that in any church that I've been a part of. But just for a moment, I want you to think about this passage not as radical, but as really just a description of family, of really any good family. It's just a description of how any good family would operate. I want you to think about it in this way for just a moment, and then we'll get back to seeing it as a radical description of Christian community. So first of all, um, this family, like any good family, is a family that has a strong family identity. I think I have these up on the slide here. They have a strong family identity. It says that they're one in heart and mind. I don't think this means that the early believers never disagreed with one another. Um, we're going to see, as a matter of fact, the more we read in the book of Acts, that sometimes the early believers had to get together and work out their sincere disagreements with one another. But that's true in any family, right? Even in the best of families, not everyone sees eye to eye, but in the best of families, there is a strong family identity. One in heart, one in mind. Uh, if you were raised in a strong family like that, then you know the things that were valued and not valued in your home, right? The things that were important and not important, the, the ways a family talks and does not talk, all of these things are tied into a sense of family identity, the traditions that a family has. 
so on and so forth. Um, secondly, they shared everything. Now, listen, even in a, 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 a good family, it might not be true that everything is shared, but most things are shared in a home that's functioning well, right? Once in a while, my kids will try to claim something as their own. Do your kids ever do this? Um, and listen, I do want to respect what they're attached to and what they value, but sometimes, you know, they'll make a comment like, such and such possession in our house belongs to them, right? And I have to remind them it belongs to us, right? Because this is what families do. They share very easily, naturally, out of love for one another. They share their possessions with one another. Um, and good families, there's parents or people who are playing a parental role. And in this passage that we just read, it's the apostles, these early church leaders. And as we go on in the book of Acts, we're going to see that there's more and more spiritual parents, men and women, who God raises up to be parents and mentors and teachers in the family. And of course, these people protect the family and they um, help raise up the next generation of the family and they invest in the family and they love the family and provide for the family. Uh, these are not rulers, right? Good families don't have dictators, right? But they do have spiritual parents, right? Who exercise a kind of authority that is to the benefit of those that are being led and being served. Um, there's family stories. The apostles, like any good parent in any good family, are telling the story of the resurrection, and they tell it again and again. Every good family has good stories. I did a funeral this last week um, for a woman who I did not have the privilege to know very well. But one thing that was evident at the funeral was I, I walked in uh, at, right before the funeral started, and a family member walked up to me and said, hey, at the last minute, can we insert something into the the service, can we just have time for people to tell stories? And I can tell you, I've done many funerals. Not every funeral is like this, but when it is like this, it's such a joy. Um, once the story started, you couldn't stop the stories, right? Um, the funeral went on much longer than expected because people kept sharing the stories about their loved one. And one of the grandchildren in the family said something that to me was such evidence of the love this family had for one another. Um, she said, you know, at holidays, we'd always, you know, eat our food, have our traditions, and then we'd always end up around the dining room table talking for hours and hours and hours, telling the same stories again and again and again. Some of you have had families like that. Some of you wish you had a family like that. But any good family has its stories, right, that are told again and again. And this family had its stories. The story was the resurrection of Jesus and all that he did. Um, in good families where things are operating well, there's provision so that people aren't in need. In good families, the kids don't go hungry, right? Um, if there's food in the house, it's shared, right? Um, the parents give the food they have um, to the kids if they have it. Um, in any good family, the family comes first before possessions and not the other way around. I want you to think about this for a second. In any good operating family, the possessions serve the family. The family doesn't serve the possessions, right? Now, there's a temptation in our culture for families to serve possessions, right? For families to work harder than they need to, to sacrifice more than they need to, just so that they can have these things that they feel like 
equals success in American culture. But in a good functioning family that puts the family first, there might be possessions, but the possessions are there to serve the family, not the other way around, right? The possessions are there to care for the needs of the family. So listen, I realize there may be many people in this room who did not experience the kind of family that I'm describing as I describe it. Um, but I think we can all agree that as we read this passage, this is just a picture of an ideal family, right? This is just the picture of a well-functioning family where there's a lot of love in the home. It's just a picture of what we would expect or what we would want or what we would hope for. Or if we were blessed enough um, to experience it in this life, something that we are very grateful for, right? So let me ask you a question then. Why is it that this passage seems so radical then? Why is it that it seems so foreign to our experience, especially sometimes in the church? Because really all that's being described here is a family, a good functioning family. I mean, you know, we see this all the time. It gets, you know, put out to us in movies or stories or this is what gets celebrated. So why does it seem so radical to us? Well, I think the answer is very simple. This story of family is so radical because these people are not related to each other. Right? That's what makes this so radical. If these people were related to one another, if this was a nuclear family as we imagine it, we would just think that this is just a well-functioning family. Um, worth celebrating, that's great, but we probably wouldn't think too much about it. But this passage hits us as pretty radical. And the reason it hits us this way is because these people are not related by blood to each other. And we're going to find that the story gets more radical in the book of Acts. Because these people, so far at this point in the story, do have something in common, and it's their Jewish ancestry. So they at least have that in common. And maybe we can imagine that because we can imagine places that we might affiliate with or associate with where it feels like family, even though we aren't connected by blood. But many times, there's something that we have in common. But we're going to find as the story progresses that this family, as more and more people get added to it, it's going to jump the lines of culture, of race, of class, and what we find is that this family on mission that's described in this passage is definitely not a family that is held together by bloodline. It's definitely not a family that's held together by culture. It's definitely not a family that's held together just by the shared experiences of life or people just being drawn to each other because they like each other. This family is going to end up including people who are wildly different from one another. So what is holding the family together? Well, it's the head of the family. It's a person, and his name is Jesus. We could argue that he is the only common factor between all these people as this family grows. And this is why this family raises eyebrows when outsiders look at it from the outside. It's because these people are acting like a loving family, but they have really nothing to do with each other except for Jesus. It's really his love, his story that binds them together. They've been invited into his narrative. And that's why they 
relate to each other in this kind of way. And that's why it feels radical. Listen, this description is as good of a description as any well-functioning family that you could expect. But what makes it radical is that these people aren't related to each other and they're acting in this way. Now, I've taken time to describe it this way because I realize not all of you are from Western Pennsylvania, but let me just describe the cultural reality as a Western Pennsylvanian. Family is something that we do well in Western PA, right? Many of you, either in the recent past or soon in the future, will spend significant time with your family. We have strong family ties, strong sense of identity, stories that get told from generation to generation. Um, there's some parts of the United States where that is kind of being lost, but we haven't lost that here in Western PA, and I do think it's a strength for us, except when it becomes a weakness. And here's how it can become a weakness, is for as well as we do family, we must recognize that the family that we are going to be part of for all of eternity, it is a good family, and it is a family with strong identity and stories and provision, all of that. It's just not a story that is limited by bloodline. It's a family that's bigger. It's a family that's being added to. It's a family that's on mission together, and that's what makes it different. So normally of these passages, uh, we ask four questions to help us understand what God might be saying to us through the passage. So I want us to look at those four questions. First of all, who is God? Well, he is the father of this family. All of these family passages in the book of Acts you can see God as father in the background, orchestrating and bringing the family together and setting the family values. And what that means is that we are members of the family. Who are we? We're members of the family. And I want to tell you, you become a member of this family the moment you receive God's salvation in Jesus. The way scripture describes it is that you get adopted into the family. And I just want to make this clear because some of you are newer adoptees into the family, and we've been celebrating uh, some of our new adoptees this last week, uh, last few weeks in baptism. But you must know this. You are a member of the family of God the moment you receive his love, whether or not you're the member of any church, <laughs> right? Um, church membership is just a way uh, for us to say that we know you and you know us and you're released to help us make decisions and be in leadership and things like that. Um, but you're a member of God's family because God says you are, not because you took some membership class. I think we know this, but I need to say it, right? Because membership is not tied to just some local church community. It's tied to the worldwide body of Christ. And it is something that we can't lose and that we will have forever and for all of eternity. So God's the father of the family. Who are we? We're members of the family. So what might God be saying to us out of a passage like this? Well, I think, first of all, let's act like family. Now, that sounds so nice, but let's think about what a radical statement that is. Um, I heard a story once from Francis Chan, who some of you know, he, for a long while he pastored a really large church in California until God led him to do other things. But one thing that caused him to transfer from that really large church was the experience they had in their community of leading a gang member to Christ. And this was a celebrated story. This guy had been in the streets involved in gangs, and he came to Jesus, was baptized in the church, 
and hung, stuck with it for a little while and then eventually began to drift away from the church at least. And when he was asked the question, hey, what's going on? Here's what he said. He said, when I thought, when I signed up for this, he said, I thought I was joining a family. See, this was a guy who had had family as a gang member, right? Um, and when he was a gang member, this family consumed his life. He woke up and was with his family, talked to his family, thought about his family. He was a, it was a family on mission, not a good mission, right? But he was on mission with them all day until they went to bed, and then they repeated it. His life was immersed in this family. And Francis Chan says that he realized that while this guy with his whole heart believed in, in Jesus, he was really unimpressed with Jesus' family because when he signed up for the church, he realized that the church was just a one-hour meeting on Sunday mornings and maybe a small group midweek. And that was a really poor replacement for the family that he had left behind to follow Jesus. See, friends, this is the truth. Christianity makes for a very poor program. Christianity makes for a very poor organization. It certainly makes for a very poor social club. Christianity wasn't designed to be any of those things. And when we try to take the message of Jesus and shove it into a program or a social club or something like that, what comes out is something that talks about Jesus, that does some of the things that Jesus did, but passages like this start to seem so radical and so distant to us because many of us in our Christian lives have never seen anything like this, right? Even though we've been in the church a long time. See, Christianity makes for a poor program, but it makes for a wonderful family. It makes for a wonderful community. It's what Jesus dreamed of for his church. Listen, Jesus was not dreaming of some organization when he died and rose again and left us the Holy Spirit. He certainly was not thinking of some social club. He, you, you have to know, he was thinking of far more than just an hour a week worship service and maybe a midweek thing that we go to. He was imagining a family, a community of people with strong identity. Oddly enough, the organizations and the programs that we have often built in the name of Christianity often undercut our ability to actually live this way. It's crazy. It's many, many churches put so much stuff on the calendar, ask their members to do so many things that it's impossible to live in the way that these believers did. Even if the members of that church signed up for everything and did everything, they still would be missing out on this relational component. Can I tell you one of the most radical things happening at Crestmont right now? And you might not have even realized it was happening. I don't know that I did until after it happened. But one of the most radical things that has happened is how much we've cleared our church calendar in the last few years. Um, our church is growing. I believe we're having increasing amount of missional impact. And we pretty much are down to one day a week of programs. Pretty much. It's on Sundays. Tonight at 6 o'clock p.m. You can come and participate. It's all good. I hope you do. 
But it's pretty much down to one day a week. I want you to know that's almost unheard of for a church that's growing at any level. Um, now, we have missional communities that meet throughout the week, and missional communities are an attempt to be this kind of family unless we treat those like programs too, and then they won't work. Unless we treat it just like another thing that we have to check off the list and go to. We like to call those missional communities families on mission because it's just the gathering point for people to come together as a family. But as you know, families don't just spend a couple of hours together during the week. They don't just communicate when they happen to bump into each other in the same building that we happen to call the church, right? Families live life together. Friends, I feel so urgent about this this morning because God is adding to our number. And I just want to tell you so many of the new believers whose stories you have heard in the last few weeks, um, if they're going to grow in Jesus, they don't need a program. They don't need just a good worship service. Friends, they need a family. They need a family. Um, they're going to make it through everything that the devil is going to throw against them. They need a family. And God has called us to be that. And in a good family, everybody is responsible. Listen, in a good family, I let my kids know this, right? With chores, right? Um, it's not just me and Chelsea that are cleaning things up, right? We are all responsible. I was reminding my son yesterday, he does great with his chores. But I was reminding him yesterday that just because he didn't leave that pair of scissors on the ground doesn't mean that he's not responsible to pick it up right, when he walks past. Because the way good families work is by everybody being responsible. And this means that there is not one of us that can sit on the sidelines and wait for someone to create a family for us. We all get to be it. Whether you're just new to the family or you've been in the family for many, many years, we all get to do this together. We all are responsible to one another to show this love to each other. I was reflecting on this this week as I was thinking about this passage that even still for me, and obviously I hold a position in the church that has a title, lead pastor. I'm on staff here at the church, all of that. But I was thinking about how we often say here at Crestmont that assignments are temporary and what is true to our, our, our identity will pass into the future. This is the truth, friends. My title, this assignment, is not passing into eternity. What that means is that the most significant ministry I do today, today, has nothing to do with my title. It has nothing to do with the programs that I participate in. Now, there are some programs that as a staff member here at the church, I'm responsible to lead, I'm responsible to invest in. There are things that my title means I'm responsible for here at the church. We're in our budgeting process. We're budgeting for the next year. I'm involved in that because I'm the lead pastor here at Crestmont. But here's the truth, friends. I really believe this. If you took away my title, if I was just attending here at Crestmont, if I never was standing up here and preaching, so much of my ministry as it is today, as I'm standing in front of you, would still be intact. Because the most important part of my ministry is the family part of my ministry. Are the ways that I mentor and invest and give time. I'm so glad that so many of you volunteered to participate in our programs. Hallelujah, we have children's ministry today, right? <laughs> These people have volunteered. I'm so grateful for that. But I'm just saying, if you have a title or you don't have a title, 
If you are involved in a lot of our programs or you're not involved in our programs, you can still participate in the family, right? Because being a family isn't a program. Being a family isn't about titles. It's about the way that we live with one another. And that is something that all of us can be called to. So um, I did not come up with this. Uh, a new friend of ours in Philadelphia shared this with us a few weeks ago. Some of you may have seen this before. But I just want to suggest to you that every family on mission has at least these three things, probably more. First of all, they have spiritual parents. Secondly, they have predictable patterns. And third, they have a missional purpose. Um, every family has to have spiritual parents or spiritual big brothers or big sisters or aunts or uncles or grandparents. And um, I see something powerful developing here at Crestmont. Um, God is doing some deep work in our hearts, some soul work. Um, over the last few years, I'm so glad for ministry impact. I'm glad what's happened in the community. But a quiet undercurrent of victory in our church has been the deep soul character work that has happened in us. Many in our congregation have experienced freedom from sin. Many in our congregation have walked through true repentance with other people. And you know what that sets us up for? It sets us up to be an epicenter of spiritual parenting in the future. Um, I believe that God is raising up spiritual parents. We already have some. And God bless you if you're already that. But I believe that he is raising up even more spiritual parents. And, and I just want to say this because we're still an intergenerational church. Um, but when I see people walk with Jesus for decades, and then they hit a point in their life where they feel like now they are just marginalized from everything, I don't know where that comes from. If it's just the pain of, um, you know, walking through life, or if it's the way the church disciples people, I, I'm, I think it's probably that. It's probably a systemic issue. But I just want to say this. No matter where you are in life, especially if you're older, if you feel like, you know, you can't serve or can't volunteer like you used to, you need to know this, though. You can still parent, and we need you. Um, this church has a lot of young leaders in it. I want to tell you a story. I wasn't planning on telling this. But this last week, some of those young leaders were at a conference last weekend, and in it, I mentioned that an older person in this congregation um, had recently approached me and said, we need to have a time of prayer where some of the older ones in this congregation just pray over the younger ones. Just some good job, keep it up, keep following Jesus. I shared that to the group of young leaders that I was with last weekend, and several people in the group teared up and started to cry because there is such a need for spiritual parenting in a church where there's a lot of young leaders. And so I, I'm, a, I'm like off topic of my sermon. I was not planning on going down this tangent. But listen, if you are older here, if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, we need you. And your involvement in the kingdom has far more to do than how you can serve in programs or can't serve in programs. It has everything to do with the way that you can walk beside us, the way that you can speak life to us. Um, She's not here today, so I'm just going to brag on her. Do you know that many of the millennials in this church call Ruth Statler Mother Ruth? 
Um, she never asked for that, but it's what people started calling her. Um, and if you look at her, she, she sits over here many times. If you look at her before service, I rarely speak about anybody specifically like this from up here, but it's just, I, I feel like I'm supposed to say this. Um, she sits over here. Look at the string of young adults that are walking up to her before service. Um, mother Ruth is a mother to me. Um, when, when the phone rings, and uh, by the way, if you don't know who she is, Ruth is now 92, 93 been part of this church since the 1940s. Um, but when Ruth, when Ruth uh, calls the church and Elaine Schreiner, our administrative assistant, says, it's Ruth, I pick up the phone and I listen, <laughs> all right? Um, because this lead pastor needs spiritual parents. I'm young. We need spiritual parents. And often... Sometimes she's calling me to tell me we need to correct something. <laughs> and it's okay, because spiritual parents can do that, right? Especially when the kids know that the parent loves them, right? And so sometimes she's telling me that, but most of the time, I, when I pick up the phone, Ruth is saying, keep it up. Don't be afraid. Keep moving forward. You're walking in the story and in the anointing that's been on this church for decades you are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. You keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. Do you know what that does for me? Um, I, I don't know. Ruth has some like physical issues. I can't even tell you the last time that Ruth volunteered in one of our programs. Give me a break. But she's making an impact at our church. And she's making an impact to the very end. So we have some spiritual parents. God bless you. We need more. And I think God is raising many of us up to be spiritual parents. Jim and Christine, it's what God is making you guys. Spiritual parents. The Stuarts, the Steffies. Um, do you know how much they've invested in the young leaders of this church? I rarely call people out like this from the pulpit because I don't want people to feel insecure or passed over. But listen, I'm, this is a family discussion. It's so important, and we need these things. And whatever you do, do not hit your later years walking with Jesus and think that you have nothing to offer or because you can't relate, that you have nothing to give. Listen, you have something to give, a phone call. I know sometimes I get this because I don't get it. I haven't experienced it. Someday I will. But I've walked beside so many older people who tell me how lonely it is in their later years. And I know sometimes you need the phone call. I know sometimes you need someone to pay attention to you. And you should expect that from us. We do need to give that to you. But I'm telling you, even when out of your loneliness, you pick up the phone call, you pick up the phone and you make the call, I believe that even when you do it out of your loneliness, God takes that and turns it into something incredibly valuable for the kingdom. All right? Listen, God has changed a lot here at Crestmont, but we are still an intergenerational church on purpose. On purpose. I'm so glad that we have so many single young adults, millennials, young families coming into the church. It is where we have experienced growth in the last few years. But when I talk about Crestmont, I talk about how we are still intergenerational on purpose. And I appreciate you um, older saints who have stuck with us through as much change as you've had. Okay. I'm so far off my sermon. Let's get back to this. Predictable patterns and a missional purpose. Every family, 
has predictable patterns, ways they talk, things they celebrate, things they do day in and day out. And it's why our family must be more than a Sunday morning worship experience, but a Sunday morning worship experience is important to our family, right? It must be more than meeting in a missional community, a smaller gathering throughout the week, but those meetings are important because every family has predictable patterns. And if you are not able to connect to some kind of gathering like that, you will have a harder time getting connected to the family because those predictable patterns are doorways for people to participate in what is happening um, in the family. And then, missional purpose. Um, this family is different because it is a family that is always growing. It's a family that is always adding. It's a family that is always crossing boundaries. And so we are a family, not just a family, but a family on mission, a family that is turned outward. Okay, as I close, John, if you could come play. So what are we going to do about it? Well, two things. Um, I'm just uh, hearing something, and then we're going to finish out this sermon. But um, George... George and Nancy, I, I'm sorry, I'm putting you on the spot. But could you guys be ready to just pray over us as a family? Could you do that? Um, I think that's how we're going to close. Um, however you guys feel led, but just, uh, I'm going to give you the mic at the end of this. I just want you to pray a family blessing over us. There are many other people I could choose, but... Um, George and Nancy, you guys just came to my mind. Are you okay with that? Okay, thanks. Okay, so what are we going to do about it? Two things. Number one, we have to abandon our isolation. We have to abandon walking alone as some kind of viable form of Christianity. We have to abandon disconnection as a norm for how we follow Jesus. It doesn't work. I don't know how else to say it to you. We don't grow unless we grow as a family. We win as a family. We lose as a family. We suffer as a family. Um, and you need to know, if the devil is in your ear, always telling you that you don't belong in the family, you must realize that heaven does not talk that way. Hell does. Recognize what you're hearing. Call it out. And if you need someone to stand next to you in prayer to fight for your place at the table the family. I'm so tired of watching the devil isolate people like they don't have a, ta like a place at the table. Jesus died so that you'd have a place at the table. I get it. The people around the table can be dysfunctional sometimes, but they can't take away your seat. You have a seat. You have a seat that nobody can take away. But also this, I think we have to abandon the idolatry of our nuclear families. Now, I'm speaking to some of you who, as I was reading the description at the beginning, you thought, yeah, that was my family growing up, or that's my family now. Or I find that people who often have not had good experiences in their, their bloodline family um, often connect to the family of God easier and quicker and better because they're just so hungry. For family. So I just want to speak to those of you who really had it pretty good growing up. And praise God that you did. We ought to celebrate good, strong families. 
We ought to fight for good, strong nuclear families. That, that is a good thing, right? Can we all agree on that? However, in a culture where family is disintegrating, we are watching in the church the idolatry of the nuclear family. Like the church exists only to protect our nuclear families. You must know this. The church does not exist to protect your nuclear family. It exists to join your nuclear family to the worldwide church of God and to get your family and the larger family on mission. And that means that God may lead your nuclear family to some uncomfortable places. You may have to take some risks. You may have to make some decisions about your kids that you wouldn't make otherwise, but you would for Jesus because the mission comes first. Friends, when our kids see us make them an idol in the home, they do not believe that Jesus is worth giving up anything for because their parents didn't do it. When we're willing to give up anything for Jesus up to the line of our kids, and then we protect them from the mission, we are not uh, evidencing to them the power of what God wants to do in their lives. So listen, family is good. My goodness, I love my wife. I love my kids. I love being a husband. I love being a father. These things are like some of the biggest joys of my life. But Jesus said, if we do not hate our father and mother, our brothers and sisters, then we are not worthy of him. So I love my family. But we're on the mission. You know, if I can just share this, just this last week, I felt God do something so deep in my heart because I realized Chelsea and I have done a lot of things wrong um, in parenting. I'm sure we've made lots of mistakes. But we have tried to make decisions for our kids that surround the mission. And sometimes that has meant that people have questioned us and you can hear in the questioning like we are um, slighting our kids somehow because we're not giving them everything our culture says that they should have. And I have carried a false sense of guilt and shame over that. I, I released that this last week. Because listen, I, I want what's good for my kids like you want what's good for your kids. But more than anything else, I want my kids connected to the mission. That's what I want. In our home, I want Jesus to come first. And my kids cannot see me making decisions that put comfort and security above the mission, right? Um, and, I, and, and here's what makes that possible. I've done a lot of things wrong as a parent, but I do trust Jesus with my kids. I trust that what he wants for them is what's best, no matter what it is, all right? Okay, I said a lot of things I was not planning on saying, but praise God for our time together, all right? Um, George and Nancy, if you would come up. I broke so many of my rules this morning, like don't call people out from the pulpit. I have all these rules. <laughs> um, however you guys want to pray. I, I think normally we call our prayer ministers up, but I feel like this is the moment that we're supposed to have. Um, so can we do this just as a sign of faith? Can we just extend our hands where we're sitting? Um, George and Nancy aren't the only spiritual parents in our congregation, not by a long shot, but they are that. And... Uh, and God brought them to us at a time where we were really praying that God would give us more, 
mothers and fathers in the faith. Um, and uh, he continues to bring those people to us. And uh, so will you just bless us as spiritual parents and then I'll dismiss us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are such a good, good God. And we thank you for the way you love each of us. We thank you that you have um, the great desire to make us into a family, that each day we will realize that more and more. We thank you, Lord, for the way you um, have called us to be that. And we thank you for each of our nuclear families, but also, Lord, we want to model your family. We want to love others as you love us as a family. We thank you, Lord, for what um, a good parent you are and for the way you have um, just carried us through so many things and you've stayed with us through everything that we've experienced and every struggle we've had and even the wrong things that we've done. Um, we just pray that you would continue to knit us together, Lord, and we're so grateful that we're in a church where that is um, a church where you dwell and where you show us what your will is in this whole process. So we just thank you and bless you, Lord. We bless your holy name. In Jesus, amen. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for adopting us into your family. We didn't choose that. You chose us and called us to be your children. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you make this such a rich family. We go throughout the world, we go throughout our neighborhood, and we run into uh, brothers and sisters that are part of your family. And it's by your spirit that we recognize one another and we uh, know that we are your children and that we're related to one another by the blood of your cross. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that uh, you accept us. We'd ask, Lord, that you would allow us to be vulnerable with one another and build our relationship that we might be interdependent with each other and trust one another. That we would walk with one another through our trials, uh, through the times that we feel discouraged and feel alone, that you would remind us that we're not alone and you'd give us the courage to reach out to one another and express our needs, that you would allow us to take risks and, and share our possessions, just not our material possessions, but the the gifts that you've given us and in our experiences in following you. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you remind us that when we uh, give ourselves away, we really discover ourselves. That sometimes the things we don't uh, really feel comfortable doing end up being the things that bring us growth. And, and draw us closer to you. Thank you that, Lord, uh, you give us the privilege of being with one another as we uh, go through illnesses and, and uh, problems with our children or problems with our parents or problems with one another. 
continue, Lord, to draw us closer together, that we would, uh, that this community would know Crestmont as uh, a family that um, loves one another, that we are your disciples because we love one another. Show us how to do that, Lord, not that it would threaten us and make us feel like we're being forced into something, but something, Lord, that we just uh, receive and, and relish because it's an expression of your love and, and you're binding us together. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the leadership that you give this church, uh, this body, this family of yours, this community, just not in the young leadership, but in the uh, more mature leadership. Thank you, Lord, that you have so much to teach us through one another. Lord, bless us and keep us. May your face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. Lift up your countenance upon us and give us your peace, Lord. Amen. Now, just a moment. I know we're over. Um, um, you know, when a family is talking around the dinner table, uh, they don't rush, you know, <laughs> um, because you just feel the peace and the security of the moment. Do you feel that this morning? And do you see why we need spiritual parents? Do you hear in George and Nancy the security that they're able to bless us with that comes from a lifetime of walking in the love and revelation of God? We need that. Um, just as they were praying, I was just thinking, last story, and then we're done. Um, I saw uh, Eunice McLaughlin saying back here, Eunice, could you just raise your hand real quick? I'm not calling you up or anything. But um, I, vis I visited Eunice once, and, and this is just to give a testimony of how important this is. Um, Eunice made one comment to me that has stuck with me on this visit. She said, Joel what you guys are preaching, particularly as it relates to the Holy Spirit, which has felt like a newer thing for us in recent years, um, she said, that is how it works. And you need to keep preaching it because we haven't heard that for a long time. She probably didn't even realize how saying that one thing puts foundation under my feet to keep ministering on. Because when you're young, you wonder, am I pushing too hard? Am I saying too much? Am I right? Am I wrong? just to have someone say, you're doing the right thing. Keep going. Um, it means a lot. All right? Okay. Everyone in here, if you're in Jesus, you're part of the family and no one can take your seat away. Go in the security and in the peace of that place at the table. You're dismissed.